Good morning, church. You've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do. Please turn in them to the 20th chapter of the book of Revelation. If you're new to us here at New Branch, we've been walking through this book. Coming up to about a year, Lord willing, we will conclude this. The Sunday before Easter, we are nearing the end. We're at the end, and the new heaven and the earth are about to burst forth. Last week in chapter 20, we looked at the first six verses, and we talked about the millennium and how there are a variety of views of the millennium. All of the ones that we talked about last week, we said, fall well within the boundary of Orthodox Christianity. The premillennial view states that Christ will return before or pre the millennium, that there will be a physical earthly realm, uh, reign of Christ on the earth, and Christ will return before that to set that up. The post-millennial view says that Christ will return post or after the millennium, and that the millennium is actually happening now, and Christ is reigning on the earth, not physically, but through his church, and then Christ will return again afterwards. Then the amillennial view, which says that the thousand-year reign is figurative, that the reign of Christ is heavenly and spiritual, not earthly and physical, and that after this age, then Christ will return imminently to set up the age to come, the eternal state. Now, it's important as we look at today's passage to keep those views in mind because in large measure, depending on the flavor of the millennial view that we prefer, it's going to color how we understand uh, these verses as well. And so this morning, we're going to conclude, Lord willing, we're going to conclude chapter 20, and we're going to look at uh, the final defeat of Satan in verses 7 through 10, and the final judgment of sinners in verses 11 through 15. So, so let's follow along in your copy of the scriptures. Revelation chapter 20, beginning verse 7, and continuing through the end of the chapter. Church, this is God's word. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. 
This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for the privilege it is to gather together as your people, to worship you, to praise you through song, to observe the Lord's Supper that your Son instituted in his last days on earth. We thank you for the opportunity we have this morning to praise your name for the gospel. And we thank you so much, Father, for this book that we hold in our hands. We trust that it is your very breath. And so we ask, Father, that you would attend to the reading of your word with your spirit. We ask that your spirit would be present in this room and give us not just an understanding of what this means, but Lord, that you would drive these truths, which are precious, deep into our souls, and Father, that it would bear fruit for your glory. Father, we pray this for those who are in this room and know Jesus Christ by faith, that we would be marked by the truths that are here, and that we would live our lives as if they are really true. And Lord, we pray for those that are in this room that, that have not come to faith in Jesus. Lord, that they would encounter the reality of what is going to happen. And God, we pray that you would grant them faith to trust in your son Jesus so that they might be rescued from this horrific and tragic end that is coming. We ask this and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to look at two parts of this passage. First of all, the defeat of Satan in verses 7 through 10, and then the final judgment in verses 11 through 15. So let's look first at the defeat of Satan in verses 7 through 10. So what does the text say? Well, the thousand years that we talked about last week now comes to a close, and now Satan is released from prison. I would uh, ask you to note here that we find another example of the divine passive verb form that we've seen all throughout the book of Revelation, that the divine passive is when the writer uh, suggests that an action is taking place and is not explicit in who the subject is that is doing the acting. But by way of context, we know that the one who is doing the acting is God himself. And so we're told here that Satan will be released from heaven. Who is it who will release Satan from this prison that he has been bound in for these thousand years? Clearly, from context, it is God himself who releases Satan at this point. He's released, we're told, to deceive the nations who are at the four corners of the earth, who then gather for battle against the Lord. And there is a lot of them. Uh, we're told in verse 8 that they, their number is like the sand of the sea. So they are numerous and they march up over the plain of the earth. They surround the saints and that beloved city, which I believe is Jerusalem. And there is one final rebellion against God and one final battle that is about to happen. And as we've seen before, the battle itself is incredibly anticlimactic. It is over 
before it even begins. We're told that fire comes down from heaven and consumes them. And then the devil, the one who deceived them, is thrown into the lake of fire where he is tormented day and night forever, forever and ever. Now, depending, again, on which flavor of the millennium you prefer, it's going to um, impact how we understand this passage. It's going to mean pretty different things depending on what you understand the millennium to be. Uh, for the amillennial and the postmillennial, for that matter, who say that the millennium is either now or it soon will be on earth, uh, and then Christ will return, to them, verses 7 through 10 are describing yet another, this is yet another description of the battle of Armageddon that we've seen described a number of times already in the book of Revelation. The battle of Armageddon is that final battle between the forces of good and the forces of evil against the nations who gather to battle against Jesus and the church. And this battle was most recently described for us in the closing verses of chapter 19. And at the end of chapter 19, we're told that uh, the beast and the false prophet gathered together with the kings of the earth and their armies, and they gather to battle against Christ after Christ returns to the earth. And they are roundly defeated. The beast and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire, and the armies of men are slaughtered by the, the, by the sword that comes out of the mouth of him who sits on the throne or who sits on that white horse that's coming out of heaven, that's Jesus. And so this means that they are slaughtered by his very words. And then we're told at the end of chapter 19 that uh, the birds of the air feast on their flesh. That was the battle of Armageddon. That was a description of it there at the end of chapter 19. And the amillennial and postmillennial would suggest that what we have here in verses 7 through 10 of chapter 20 is yet another recapitulation, another retelling of that very same battle, that very same story. And so that's, a, that's one way to look at this. Uh, the premillennial position, which I kind of showed my cards to you last week, I hold to loosely. The premillennial position will see something very much different in verses 7 through 10. Again, the premillennial position will say that Christ will return before or pre this reign of Christ on the earth, and it's maybe a thousand year, maybe it's just a long, long time, but Christ will return after that, and then, verse 7, after that thousand years, Satan is released from the prison. Remember, he was bound in verses 2 and 3. He was bound and thrown into the abyss. That was his prison. So now he's released from this prison, and what does he do? He immediately goes, and he begins deceiving the nations, and they gather together, being deceived by Satan, to do battle against the church and against the Lord, and they are again roundly defeated. Fire comes down from heaven and consumes them. And then Satan, he's thrown into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet were because they were thrown into the, into the abyss or into the lake of fire in chapter 19, and now Satan joins them to be tormented day and night Forever. And so the premillennial position sees Christ's return uh, in chapter 19 and the defeat of the beast and the false prophet in chapter 19. But then, now in chapter 20, uh, the premillennial will see that after the thousand years, 
the, Satan is bound for the thousand years and Christ reigns on the earth. But after the thousand years, Satan is now released. There's one final battle. And then after that, he's thrown into the lake of fire to be tormented forever. That's, so that's the premillennial view. Now, I want us to consider a question here, and I think it'll help us to understand really one of the primary purposes for the millennium itself. And the question I want to consider is this, who are these people who are once again deceived by Satan into gathering in battle against the Lord for this one final time? Well, we have a couple of options as to who they are. First, they could be the resurrected believers. Uh, excuse me, unbelievers, unbelievers who have died and have now resurrected. Look back at verse 5 in chapter 20 that we looked at last week. John says that the rest of the dead did not come to life until after the thousand years were ended. Last year we said that the rest of the dead refers to those who were not included in the first resurrection. The first resurrection are those, verse 4, those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. And so that first resurrection was a resurrection of believers, those who have professed faith in Jesus Christ. So the rest of the dead are those then who had worshipped the beast and had received the mark of the beast. In other words, these are unbelievers, those who had rejected God who had rejected Christ and his gospel. They are also to be resurrected, we're told, but, yet, but, but not yet according to the revelation. But some say that these who now, in verses 7 through 10, are gathering for one final rebellion against God, that they are these resurrected unbelievers. Because after all, now the thousand years have ended. Satan has been unbound, and so presumably the rest of the dead have now been resurrected. And that's a perfectly good explanation of what is happening here. Um, it's just one that, that I don't happen to find uh, very convincing. Instead, I think we have another option. I think the words that are used to describe this group of people in verses 8 and 9 can be more plainly understood to be simply people, unbelievers, who are alive and living on the earth at this time. Look at verse 8. So Satan is unbound, he's released from the abyss, he's released from his prison, and verse 8, he will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. So the, the nations are at the four corners of the earth. Now, where do unbelievers go when they die? Well, unbelievers, we affirm, go to Hades, they go to the place of the dead, where they are in conscious misery awaiting the final judgment that we'll look at in verses 11 through 15. And here, Satan comes out of the abyss, and there's no mention of the unbelieving dead being resurrected, coming up out of Hades, but rather, where are these people in verse 8? They are at the four corners of the earth. In fact, it delineates that they are divided into nations, he particularly mentions Gog and Magog. Um, in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39, they, these are allusions to Israel's sworn enemies. And so they represent the nations that are opposed 
to God and his people. And so these people are on the earth, at the four corners of the earth. They're divided into nations. And then in verse 9, we're told that they march up over the broad plain of the earth and surround the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And I find it very difficult to imagine that that is a description of the resurrected unbelieving dead. Instead, I understand that these who gather for one final rebellion in these verses against the Lord and against the church are simply unbelievers, generations of them who have survived the final battle of Armageddon and continue to live during the millennial reign of Christ. Now some will say, wait a second, didn't everyone die during the final battle of Armageddon? So how could unbelievers survive and live through the millennium? But if you go back to chapter 19, look at verse 21, where John tells us of the defeat of those who gathered against him at the battle of Armageddon. He says in verse 21 that the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on his horse, and the birds gorged themselves with their flesh. Now who's he referring to there? The rest of whom? Well, it's the rest of those who had gathered along with the beast and the false prophet to battle against the Lord. Look at verse 19. John says, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. So the rest, in verse 21, are those who had gathered with the beast and with the false prophet in order to do battle against the church and against the Lord, and they are killed, and their flesh is eaten by the birds. But I think it's also presumable that not every unbeliever on the earth was a part of these armies. And so at least some of them are not part of this army, and so not everyone is killed and fed to the birds. And so some make it into the millennium, some unbelievers. Not to mention the fact that I do believe that there will be births during the millennium babies will be born there will be young people during the millennium and now they won't be born to uh, those of us who have died and now have resurrected bodies because there's no marriage after this life and so uh, we won't have babies but those who are christians who survive that tribulation and make it into the millennium and those unbelievers who weren't killed in the final battle of armageddon and make it into the millennium they will have children and their children will have children. Whether it's a thousand years or uh, whether it's a literal thousand years or just lots of years, there will be generations of babies that are born. And so young people still will need to respond to the gospel and repent of their sins and trust in Christ in order to be saved during the millennium. But the point is here that I, I believe that there will be unbelievers who exist along with the saints who are reigning with Christ during that millennial reign of Jesus. And at the end of the thousand years, when Satan is released, these unbelievers will quickly and easily be deceived by Satan into gathering for one final rebellion against the Lord. Now, why do I take the time to try to delineate who these people are who are gathering against the Lord in verses 7 through 10? Well, it's because I think that if we can understand, if we can understand that these are unbelievers who are coming out of the millennium itself and not just resurrected unbelievers, then this may give an indication for the purpose of the millennium. Now, I think on one hand, 
We know what the purpose of the millennium is. It is to glorify God, is to magnify Jesus Christ as king because that's who he is. But on the, on the other hand, I think there may be, may be an additional purpose to the millennium here, and that is to show that God is just in his judgment of sinners. We're about to look in verses 11 through 15 at the final judgment. And it is very, very difficult to read those verses and hear about eternal and everlasting torment of people made in the image of God and not find ourselves wondering, is God just in all of this? The Apostle Paul was very concerned about providing a justification for the judgment of God for sinners. That's why he wrote verse chapters 9 through 11 of the book of Romans, because that's what those chapters are. They are an apologetic to show that God is supremely just and right in his judgment of sinners. That's why we have chapters 9 through 11 of Romans, that they are without excuse now. But I think what we find here in these verses is a real-life example, and a real-life display of God's justness in eternally punishing sinners. Think about what we have here. For a thousand years, whether it's literal or just a lot of them, for a thousand years, Christ, the Lord, has been reigning as king on the earth. Now, admittedly, it's very difficult to find a definitive picture in Scripture as to what life will be like during the millennium, particularly because many of the passages that many will say apply to life during the millennium, we don't know for sure whether they apply to life during the millennial reign of Christ or whether they apply to the eternal state in the age to come. But if at least some of those passages do refer to an earthly reign of Christ and his kingdom, then we can rest assured that that time will, will be one of great peace and abundant prosperity. None of those passages talk about any social injustices on the earth or evils that will be rampant on the earth. That's not to say that there won't be any sin during that reign. I think there will be, but it will be a time that is very much different than now, a time that is marked by great peace, great prosperity, and much, much, much more good than bad. And yet, even after a thousand years of that, after a thousand years of Christ reigning on the earth, and mankind living in peace, enjoying great abundant prosperity, and having an environment around us that is good, and by the way, a thousand years without the deception and influence of Satan because he's bound during that time. And yet, after a thousand years of that, still there are many Many 
Verse 8 says that their number is like the sand of the sea, who are at the drop of a hat are so easily deceived to the point where they gather together in one final rebellion against the Lord. Listen to what George Ladd, I've relied on his, I've used many commentaries, believe me, during the study of Revelation, but I've relied on George Ladd's uh, commentary and his other works a lot. But listen to what he has to say about this passage. In the present instance, even after Christ himself has reigned over men during the millennium, when the deceiver is set free from his prison, he finds the hearts of men still responsive to his seductions. This makes it plain that the ultimate root of sin is not poverty or inadequate social conditions or an unfortunate environment. It is the rebelliousness of the human heart. The millennium and the subsequent rebellion of men will prove that men cannot blame their sinfulness on their environment and the decrees of God will be shown to be just and righteous. And so what we gather from verses 7 through 10 is that our great enemy, the deceiver Satan, will be thrown into the lake of fire to be tormented day and night forever. Satan, as we mentioned last week, is given a measure of latitude to deceive and wreak havoc on the earth during this age. But he is on a leash. He's on a leash. And the Lord will not permit him to deceive or influence an inch beyond what is necessary in order for God's sovereign and perfect will to be accomplished. But even after Satan has been, been bound for a thousand years, still when he's released, the hearts of man will long to rebel against God and do their own thing. And so they will once again fall prey to his deceptions. But ultimately, fire will come down from heaven and consume them, and Satan will be t- punished for all of eternity. So now in the Revelation, Satan is getting what is due him. What about man? His due reward is still to come. And that's what brings us to the closing verses of chapter 20 and verses 11 through 15, and where we see here the final judgment. First of all, what does the text of these verses say? John sees a great white throne. It's white, indicating the purity of this judgment. And he sees the one who's sitting on the throne, who's our Lord. We're told in verse 11 that earth and sky fled away from his presence and nowhere was found for them. Earth and sky flee away, which is an indication that creation itself now is disappearing and making way for a new creation. And that new creation will begin to unfold as we look in chapters 21 and 22 in the weeks ahead. We see the new heaven and the new earth descending. But here we see creation itself, which has been under the curse of man's sin since Genesis chapter 3, being readied for its own 
restoration. Earth and sky flee away from the presence of him who sits on the great white throne. John tells us in verse 12 that he saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. So in my reading of the Revelation, this, this is where the rest of the dead are resurrected. This is the resurrection of unbelievers. And now they're standing before the throne to be judged. This is the judgment of those who have rejected Christ. Parenthetically, I also happen to believe that this is where believers will also stand before the throne and will also be judged, but their judgment will be quite a bit different. The scriptures speak of the judgment seat of Christ for believers instead of the great white throne. Believers will not appear before the great white throne, which is a judgment unto eternal punishment. But believers will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, which is a judgment unto eternal reward. We read about the judgment seat of Christ, the the Bema seat, as it is referred to in several places throughout the New Testament. Romans 14, 2 Corinthians 5, 1 Corinthians 9, 2 Timothy 2, and elsewhere. This is where we are rewarded for deeds that we do in this life. This is where we receive our crowns as we talk about often. And while Revelation doesn't speak specifically of this event in this passage, just as we said with the rapture, just because it doesn't deal with it in this passage, doesn't mean that other passages don't talk about it. And while some who might hold to a rapture of the church where the church is taken away before the tribulation, those who hold to that will say that the, that the judgment seat of Christ probably takes place then when the church is taken away. But I think it occurs here, along with, and somehow, I don't know how, but somehow connected to the great white throne judgment. But the dead are standing here before the throne, and so I'm understanding this to refer to the unbelieving dead who are now resurrected at the end of the thousand years, and now they're standing before the great white throne. And what happens? Well, they're going to be judged. So what is the basis for their judgment? The basis for, this, for their judgment are books and what's contained in these books. There are multiple books that are opened. Some contain the deeds of those who are standing before the great white throne. And there's another book called the book of life. And so the judgment of these who are standing before the great white throne is based on what is found in these books or what is not found in them. First, according to the book of deeds... We're told twice in these verses that they were judged according to what they had done. And this book of deeds, by the way, doesn't include any good deeds. It only includes a list of bad deeds. It's a recording of all sins ever committed. We do no goods apart from Christ. The prophet Isaiah reminds us that our good deeds are like Filthy garments, filthy rags. And so these are only bad deeds in this book, a record of every sin ever committed. committed. Now, I don't know this for sure, and so don't take this as gospel truth, but I like to think that the deeds of followers of Jesus are also in this book. The sins that those who have trusted in Christ are also recorded and are in this book. 
But friend, they are crossed out. And next to them is written, paid in full by Jesus. Jesus paid the debt of all those who have trusted in Christ. But the rest, the rest of the record here will not be crossed through. It will not say next to them, paid in full, but rather will say, unpaid. And for these sins, these unbelievers will be thrown into the lake of fire, which John tells us is the second and last death, because after this, death itself will be thrown into the lake of fire. And henceforth, there will be no more death. So what is the basis for their eternal punishment in the lake of fire? Their unpaid for sins. Every word spoken in anger. Every unkind thought. Every act of unkindness. Every wrong thing done, said, or thought will be entered into evidence against these who are standing before the great white throne. And just one of them, just one of these would be enough to declare them guilty as charged. But the list goes on and on and on and on. And there will be no doubt as to whether or not they deserve judgment. And it will be glaringly clear to all that eternal punishment is both fair and right. But there will be one more check on these who so obviously deserve judgment. And that is to see if their name is written in the book of life. This book contains the names of all, of all those who have repented of their sins and confessed faith in Jesus Christ alone as their only hope to be rescued from what they deserve because of their sins. We learned in Revelation chapter 3 that once your name is in this book, it can never be erased. In Revelation 3 verse 5, Jesus says, The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I, Jesus says, will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Once it's there, it's never erased. We also learned in chapter 17 of Revelation when the names are written in this book. And they're not written in this book when we come to faith in Jesus. Instead, we're told that our names are written in this book. If they're there, they're written there before the foundation of the world. And so we're told in that last verse of Revelation 20 that if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into that lake of fire. And so the basis for the judgment of sinners will be twofold. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. We see both here in these books, don't we? Yes, their judgment is their own responsibility. The books of their deeds stand as evidence against them. And there is no defense. They're culpable. They are 
guilty. There is no excuse. They are fully deserving of the verdict and the sentence that is coming. And yet, their judgment is also due to the sovereignty of God. Because although the sins of all of us who know Jesus Christ by faith and have put our trust in his finished work on Calvary as our only hope, all of our sins are in these books as well. But because our names are in that other book, the book of life, our sins are marked paid in full by Jesus. We are no less guilty We are no less deserving of this very same punishment. And yet because the guilt of our sins and the punishment of our rebellion are laid on the shoulders of Jesus Christ on Calvary, he paid our debt in full. He satisfied the wrath of God against our sins. And so there is, by God's grace, no more wrath for those who are in Christ. But these who stand before the great white throne, friend, their debt remains. And the wrath of God for them has not been satisfied. And so the verdict is clear. Guilty as charged. And the sentence is horrific. Eternal torment. Day and night forever. In the lake of fire. As we seek to bring application of a passage like this to our lives, I want to suggest four responses that I think are appropriate for this text. The first is to praise God for his just judgment of sin. Friend, we do not worship a God who sweeps things under the rug. He doesn't. That would not be just. That would not be fair. No, our God doesn't do that. Instead, he judges rightly and fairly. And he deserves our praise for that. He deserves our worship for that. The psalmist writes in Psalm 89, verse 14, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Psalm 111, verses 7 through 8, the works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. God deserves to be praised that he brings just judgment for sin. And you know, we see glimpses of this on earth we see glimpses of perfect justice on earth however imperfectly portrayed it is every time wrongdoers are justly punished we see glimpses of this every time a child abuser is put away for life every time a company is held accountable for some wrongdoing and assessed punitive damages Every time a thief is caught and put away. Even every time a murderer is executed. 
All of this is a nod to the perfect justice that will come one day at the hands of our God. Justice here is not perfect. Justice on earth is incomplete and stained with sin. We do justice here imperfectly because we are imperfect people. Sometimes the innocent are wrongly accused and even sentenced. Sometimes the guilty are set free. Justice in the here and now imperfectly points to a perfect justice that is to come. Where sinners who absolutely deserve judgment and are without any excuse and who do not have a redeemer will be sentenced to eternal torment. And so we praise God that he is a just God. Second response to this text is to thank God for his redeeming grace for sinners like us. Friend, the only difference between many of us in this room and those who are standing before the great white throne in this scene is an encounter with Jesus Christ through his gospel. We all deserve what these who are before the great white throne are about to receive. We all deserve that because of our rebellion against the king, our desire to do things our own way. We know this, right? We deserve this. And yet for many in this room, myself included, God was gracious to show us our sin. He was gracious to show us our need for a redeemer and he was gracious to show us Jesus and he was gracious to give us a new heart and to walk us across the line of faith to respond to him in saving faith and repentance of sins so that we might be restored and forgiven and redeemed and all of this was an act of his sovereign and redeeming grace so in response to this, we ought to thank him constantly for the redeeming grace that he has shown us to save sinners. But thirdly, we ought to live quorum Deo, live before the face of God. In other words, to live as if this was really true, to live as if all our deeds are being recorded, because they are. And one day will be read aloud for all to hear. We ought to live in the here and now as if God were watching and recording all of our actions, all of our words, and all of our thoughts. This ought to be evident then in, in how we fight against sin and, and temptation. It ought to be evident in how we seek to grow in our walk with Christ and our faith. It ought to be evident in how we pursue godliness and holiness in our lives. We don't pursue these things in order to please God, in order to earn his favor, or in order to uh, appease his wrath against our sins. These things have already been accomplished by Jesus Christ as our substitute. God is pleased with us because of Christ in us. We have God's favor only by grace through faith in Christ alone. And his wrath has been satisfied. 
but not by any good doing that we do, but by his, Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice at Calvary. You know, the reason that we fight against sin, the reason that we seek to grow in our walk with Christ by faith, and the reason that we pursue godliness and holiness is because we want to see God glorified. We want to see Jesus magnified in and through our lives. And so, when we're reminded here that our debts are Our deeds are being recorded and that they will be read aloud at the judgment seat of Christ if nowhere else. It ought to compel us to live for his glory today so that he might be glorified in that day as well. Let's live quorum Deo because this stuff is true. But fourthly, this ought to compel us to be a faithful gospel witness to the lost who are around us. We know that there are people all around us who are without Christ. And unless they come to faith in Jesus, they too will be in this crowd that stands before the great white throne. And the books will be opened. And their sins will be laid bare before God. And their guilt will be clear to all around. And then the second book will be opened, the book of life. And their names won't be in it. And they'll be thrown into the lake of fire to be tormented day and night forever and ever. It's horrific, isn't it? It's a horrific thought. It's not just a thought, it's reality. This stuff is going to happen. And each of us have people in our own families, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our communities that are headed for this horrific end. And if there's anything that ought to compel us to bring the gospel to them, it ought to be this picture that we don't want them to experience this. And the only way they won't is by responding to the gospel in faith. I don't know if you've ever been to Niagara Falls. If you haven't been to Niagara Falls, you've probably seen pictures or videos, and they it's cliche, but they really don't do justice. It is awesome. And I've been there a couple of times, and just the, the awesome power as you stand there in front of those falls, and you watch millions of gallons of water, hundreds, probably thousands of tons of water, falling over the edge of Niagara Falls every minute, and crashing onto the rocks below. And as you watch that, you can't help but just consider, man, what would it be like to like fall in right there and go over the edge? And you just think about that and you feel that in your mind. Well, imagine that you're on the Canadian side. If you're on the Canadian side, you, you're able to see the, the falls and you're able to see the river 
upstream. I don't know what river that is, Niagara River, whatever that river that comes in from the Canadian side. But you're able to see upstream. Imagine you're standing there and you look into the distance and you see a little rowboat. And it's, it's headed towards the edge. And as it gets closer, you look and you, you recognize some of the people on the boat. It's one of your children. Maybe your neighbors. They're on the boat. Your coworkers. This lady that checks out your groceries at the grocery store. You see her, your realtor. They don't see it. They're they're preoccupied with something else. You would do whatever you had to do to warn them that impending death is right ahead. Church, out of a love for the loss that the people has put within the spheres of our influence, And out of a firm belief that what we read here in Revelation 20 is true. It's going to happen. May we be compelled to bring the only thing that can save those people on the rowboat. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And friend, if you're here this morning and you're on that rowboat, Please hear me this morning. A horrific and tragic ending is right around the corner. Jump off while you can. Get out of there. Trust in Christ. Repent of your sins and trust in Christ alone. He's your only hope for rescue. Trust in Christ to be saved. Let's pray. Our God and King, it is so easy for us to get so wrapped up in the here and now and the activities of our earthly lives and be oblivious and forget perhaps that this world is coming to an end. It may not be today, it may not be tomorrow. We're not given insight as to when it will happen, but we are told without a doubt that this world won't last forever. Father, as those whom you have saved by your sovereign and redeeming grace through faith in Jesus Christ, God, would you help us to live today as if this stuff were really true? To live today as if one day we will give an account for our lives To live today as if the rest of eternity will be spent with you. And this is just a dress rehearsal. To live today as if the lost who are around us are headed for a Christless eternity because they are. Oh God, would we not live the same in light of the truth of this passage. And Father, may you be glorified in us and in this church by how you use us in this world 
to live for your glory and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to those around us. We pray this in faith in Jesus' name. Amen.